Listen with me. Mark 14, 12 through 25. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who was eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Thank you, Stephanie. Good morning. I hope you're all enjoying the new chair arrangement. If you haven't noticed, you're probably sitting in the middle, but if you have, you're probably sitting on the outside. No longer will you be forced to stare at brown wall. Now you can stare at my ugly mug uh, for the morning. Um, But we're trying some things out. Hope you enjoy the, the new arrangement. Sociologists have labeled American kind of civic religion, they've labeled it moral therapeutic deism. Maybe you've heard that term, maybe you haven't. Moral therapeutic deism, meaning moral, meaning he, God expects us to be good-ish, more or less. And when, the, when the scales of justice are weighed, our good should outweigh the bad-ish. There's no kind of uh, uh, standard by which to judge good and bad, but moral. A therapeutic meaning that the purpose of my life is that I feel good. And God's purpose is to make me feel good. So moral, good-ish, therapeutic, feel good, deism. God exists, but he's somewhere out there. So moral, therapeutic, deism. God exists, he wants me to be good, but he really exists to make me happy. And what you get with that, right, is that something beyond me, Something beyond, something transcendent, beyond what I can control or experience doesn't really exist. It doesn't really matter. One of the, I think, key ways that we show this in our culture is the ways that we talk about sex and food. So this sermon will be about sex and food this morning. And particularly sex, right? Uh, Our culture, the way we talk about sex, uh, it doesn't indicate that we believe in transcendence because sex is transcendence for our culture. 
No longer is it, uh, the way we used to tell stories is the, the happy ending was ended in a wedding because that indicated faithfulness and kind of a transcendent kind of outside perspective on what sex was all about. Now it just ends in spontaneous sex. Like a happy ending is that somebody had sex and that's supposed to be the good thing. And we, we see this in our music. We've had this uh, song sung for us before, but I'll just repeat it for you. A few years ago, I'll repeat the lines for you. Bruno Mars, Locked Out of Heaven. Never had much faith in love or miracles. Never want to put my heart on the line, but swimming in your water is something spiritual. I'm born again every time you spend the night because your sex takes me to paradise because you make me feel like I've been locked out of heaven for too long. See, sex is transcendence for our culture. Sex really does take us to paradise. Or instead of going to church, church now is a euphemism for sex. Church in our litur- liturgies and spiritual practices are euphemisms for sex. So hosiers take me to church. My lover's got humor. I should have worshipped her sooner. If the heavens ever did speak, she is the last true mouthpiece. My church offers no absolutes. She tells me worship in the bedroom. The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. Take me to church. I'll worship like a dog at the shrine of your lies. I'll tell you my sins and you can sharpen your knife. Offer me that deathless death. Good God, let me give you my life. That's the picture of sex in our culture. That's where we're, if we're not already there as a culture, we're headed that direction, right? Sex is transcendence or the closest thing that we get. It's something that we control and kind of manipulate. And so sex becomes transcendence for us because transcendence is too far away. We can't grasp that. Sex is something that we can commodify and hold on to and control. Everything now, our stories, our songs, everything is commodifiable and controllable. Everything can be bought and sold. Our passage today speaks to that moral, therapeutic, deist culture. Jesus the King invites us into his great feast, gives us his life from way outside of ourselves. It's not something that we have control over. He does it in us. He nourishes us by his body and his blood. And his life transcends our very, very, very small desires. He transcends us and helps us to transcend ourselves in some sense, right? He makes us into something new that we can't become without him. Just so you have a sense for what we're up to this morning, most of my application points will refer to the Lord's Supper, to communion. So I'm going to be applying this passage and taking it to to communion. And then we will take communion together in what is a better interpretation than you will hear from me. My words don't amount to a good interpretation of this passage, but taking the supper together hopefully will. It will. He created us not so that we would feel good-ish or be good-ish and feel good about ourselves. He created us for communion with himself. He created us for communion with others. He created us so that he would be intimate with us. And the Lord's Supper is the meal that helps us to participate in that intimacy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to eat from your word this morning. Thank you that you invite us to the great feast for the wedding of your son. You are a good and faithful God, bigger than our small thoughts and desires, bigger than what we can control, bigger than the small world we can see and know. You are the God of all creation and new creation. 
And we look forward to the day when we are fully intimate with you. Would you nourish us in this meal? Draw us into your full life this morning and continue to make us new by the power of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Just to remind us of the context where we've been in Mark, first eight chapters of Mark, uh, the poster we had up here said the, the servant who rules, if you remember that. The first eight chapters is Jesus establishing that he is a king. He's a servant, but he's a king. And he's establishing his kingdom. Remember, he announces his ministry with the kingdom of God is at hand. And the first eight chapters, he is speaking with authority and casting out demons and healing the sick. And he is Lord of the Sabbath. He's he's a king. He's powerful in the first eight chapters. And then Peter says, if you remember this, Peter says, you are the Messiah. And everything shifts in the whole book of Mark. After that confession of faith from Peter, Jesus starts saying, okay, I'm the king, but here's the kind of king that I am. I'm the king that goes to die for you. He becomes the ruler who serves, right? The second half of the book is all about his sacrifice, his suffering. He continues to announce over and over and over again, by the way, I'm going to die. By the way, I'm going to the cross. By the way, I'm going to go die. And everybody's like, I don't get it. He's, I'm going to die. I don't get it. Second half of the book is all about his suffering. Again, he's showing us what kind of kingdom he's bringing and what kind of king he's going to be. He's a king who serves, who sacrifices himself. He's a king who establishes his kingdom, not with military power, but with sacrifice. He doesn't continue his kingdom, rule over it with power. He rules over it with service. He's not seeking his own good, but the good of others. And he's inviting us constantly in the second half of Mark into that kind of kingdom, into living out that kind of life. In chapter 14, we've seen, chapter 14, by the way, is the long run up to the crucifixion. At the end of chapter 14, the table is set for the crucifixion. The beginning of 14, as uh, dad Jackson looked at last week, verses 1 to 11, um, we see different responses to Jesus. The rulers want him dead. The disciples want to do stuff for him. Judas wants to betray him. And the woman comes and anoints him with worship. And that as, as Jackson taught us last week, that is our response, needs to be our response. We worship Jesus. This week, it's not about our responses. This week, I'm taking this, verses 12 to 25. This is Jesus. It's front and center. So it's not about what we do. It's about Jesus. And he gives us these four images that we'll walk through this morning. First, Jesus is a Passover lamb. Second, Jesus is the son of man a betrayed son of man. Third, Jesus is a suffering servant. And then fourth, Jesus is the bridegroom. So let's look at Jesus as the Passover lamb in verses 12 to 16. His disciples start getting ready for this Passover meal. They ask Jesus, so where do you want us to go to prepare for the meal? What do you want us to do? Now the the disciples and Jesus are hanging out normally in Bethany outside of the city of Jerusalem, but the Passover meal has to be eaten in the city. So um, they have to set things up in somewhere in the city. But Jesus, it's not easy for Jesus to get into the city because everybody wants him dead and they will have him dead by the end of the next day, of course. So the disciples are, okay, what are we going to do? So, so Jesus said, okay, by the way, Jesus is very in charge. Watch for how in charge Jesus is in this situation. He's very much the ruling king here. 
They're like, where are we going to go? So Jesus says, well, go to the place you get water and follow the guy who's carrying water. Now, men did not carry water. Not even servant. There were no men that carried water in this culture. So to watch for the guy who's carrying water, that would be easy to spot, right? So the disciples go into the city and he says, follow him to his house. Ask the, the master of the house. The teacher wants to set up his place. Where should we go? And so that's all laid out by Jesus. And it happens exactly as he says, right? Jesus is so in charge. He's got it all figured out. He's got it all set up. Now, the Passover meal, if you remember, is the celebration of what God had done in leading the people out of slavery in Egypt, defeating the enemies of God, Pharaoh and the kings of, or the gods of Egypt, and bringing the people into a new promised land, into through the sea, and then 40 years in the desert, and then to the promised land. The Passover celebrates all of that. And the Passover meal, if you've ever had one, we got to celebrate one Thursday night with with the folks who are going to Israel and we had a good time. In the meal, everything is meaningful. From the way you clean the house beforehand to every word you say, to every bite you eat, it all has purpose and meaning. And it all is retelling and reliving the story of God leading his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. In, in a very real sense, that meal helps the, the, the people of Israel relive every year the, the Passover event so that they become the people who eat the Passover. We become the people who live the event. It's very like, in some ways, uh, an anniversary meal. It's not that Grace and I uh, are remarried every year when we celebrate the anniversary, but we do relive the event every year. We wouldn't not be married if we didn't celebrate the meal, but I would be a bad husband if we didn't celebrate the meal. It's the same thing for the nation of Israel celebrating the Passover. We have to celebrate the Passover because it makes us into a people. And so the more we, as we celebrate it every year, it makes us something. It, it reminds us, it helps us relive, and it helps make us into the people that celebrate the Passover. It reminds and participates in God's great salvation. Again, Jesus is in charge of all the preparations. He's very much in charge here. And so it's interesting to note this in charge king, son of man, Jesus. You get in verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrifice the Passover lamb. And for the Christian, right, this, this should tune our ears. This would be the moment in the soundtrack when you get this like, like foreshadowing music that's like, oh yeah, something big is happening with this note. Passover lamb sacrificed on this day. Jesus is our Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was sacrificed for Israel, but Jesus is still and now our Passover lamb. His blood, just like the blood of the lamb that was painted on the doorposts of the nation of Israel when God led them out of Egypt, his blood is, covers us and um, undoes our sin, not undoes, but uh, covers over our sin, gives us victory over sin. In the same way, God defeats the powers of sin and death, just as he defeated the powers of Pharaoh in Egypt. In Jesus' death, God wins victory. And God is leading us to a new promised land, into the kingdom of God. God is drawing his people out of slavery to sin. 
God is establishing a new people in this meal. God, Jesus is winning for himself a new people of God, not ethnic Israel anymore, but people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. His death is God's saving act for all humanity. And so when we eat his body and drink his blood, we relive our salvation through our lamb's death. I said this was about food and sex. This is the food part. We eat his body and drink his blood and he is making us new. He is nourishing us into something new. So Jesus is our Passover lamb whose blood uh, saves us. Second, Jesus is also the betrayed son of man. In verses 17 to 21, Jesus predicts that one of his disciples will betray him. He's a son of man. How could, how could his disciples betray him? And how does this work? Right? He's a ruling king. The son of man, the image of the son of man is from Daniel 7. That means, the, the image means when Jesus uses it for himself, he rules over all the nations. He is the great ruler that establishes an eternal kingdom that will never end. How then do his closest friends betray him? Now, again, in the soundtrack, this is where the music gets really chaotic and you get all these like uh, arrhythmic, atonal sounds, like chaos. Because Jesus is really ratcheting up the, the intensity now. And Jesus knows who will betray him. He knows it will be Judas. The disciples don't know. And so you see them asking, is it me? Am I going to be the one to betray him? But Mark, again, Mark does not name Judas here. So I think Mark is doing two things. He's not talking about Judas. He's talking about two other groups of people. First, he's talking about Jesus. And second, he's talking about the disciples. And in the disciples, I think he's including us. First, about Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man, though, who is betrayed. Again, he's a king who wins a kingdom by suffering. He's a son of man who rules, but he is betrayed. For Jesus, the son of man means more than just power and kingdom. It means a particular kind of power and a certain kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom that grows through sacrifice, that begins in suffering and death and pouring himself out. It's a kingdom whose greatest citizens are servants, and whose most blessed are the poor and the outcast. It's a kingdom where the politics are love and submission to one another. Jesus is the Son of Man, but Jesus is the Son of Man who is also the Passover Lamb. So again, Mark is saying something significant about Jesus. Mark is also saying something significant about the disciples. The structure of this passage, we, we didn't read the, the next part, but the structure of the passage is... Jesus predicts his betrayal. They eat the supper together. And then Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him and all will abandon him. Right? So you get this sandwich structure. Betrayal, denial, and everybody eats at the meal. And Mark makes the point. It says they all drank from the cup. It wasn't like Judas like didn't drink or something. And it wasn't like Peter, who was about to deny Jesus, forgot to drink. They all drank from the cup. Forgot to mention this last service, so tell Rich Kitson that I'm quoting him. 
But Rich, last week I was teaching in the all ages and stages, and Rich said, all might just be the most important word in the scriptures. I think it's really important here. All, we all drink, and all of us are unworthy to drink and eat at this meal. There is none who is worthy to dine with Jesus, to feast on his body and drink his blood. None of us are worthy. All of the disciples either betray, deny, or abandon Jesus. None of them are worthy. You and I are not worthy to eat with Jesus. We all have sinned, but God sent his son to die for us. Again, in the scales of justice, all of humanity's sin is here, all of it. And Jesus' blood is here, and Jesus' blood so far outweighs all of humanity's sin that all of us are welcome here. Everybody, no matter what you've done. Again, Jesus is the Passover lamb whose blood saves us from death and we eat his body and drink his blood at the Lord's table. He is also the son of man who rules over the nations and invites everybody, not a single worthy recipient of an invitation. There's not a single worthy guest But all of us are invited to participate at the table of his kingdom, which he establishes by his death. Passover lamb, son of man. Third, Jesus is also the suffering servant. In verses 22 to 24, Jesus establishes and institutes the Lord's Supper. Again, this is a new covenant meal. The old covenant Passover meal, Jesus takes it and elevates it, transcends it, and turns it into something completely new. Instead of the Passover lamb dying, Jesus is now the Passover lamb who dies once and for all, for all of us. Jesus is the host. He is sovereign. He's in charge. He's the son of man. And he leads us through and reinterprets the whole thing. Again, he leads the meal through eating of the Passover lamb, the breaking of the matzah, and the eating of the bitter herbs, the egg, and the other elements that recount the story of God's great saving acts that led Israel out of Egypt. And then he walks them through and leads them through the drinking of the cups of wine, the cup of sanctification, the cup of praise, the cup of redemption. And then he probably skips the last cup. We think he skips the cup of hope and completion, which is interesting. We'll come back to that. And he takes the cup of redemption and says, my cup is... My blood of the covenant poured out for many. Now this language, again, the cup of redemption, he's redeeming his people. But this language also points us, should make us think of Isaiah 53. If you remember the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, by his stripes, we are healed. By his wounds, we are are healed. And And Isaiah says of the suffering servant, his blood was poured out for many. Again, Jesus echoes the language here. He's saying, look, the Passover lamb, the son of man, they are the suffering servant from Isaiah. His wounds, Christ's wounds, heal us and make us new. He does the work. His blood poured out for us is what heals us. Again, we're not worthy. We're not worthy of any of it. But he dies so that we might have life. So Jesus is fulfilling all of these images The image of the Passover lamb, the son of man, and the suffering servant. He wraps it all up in one amazing cloth or something um, and makes it all 
come true in him. He fulfills essentially all Old Testament prophecy in himself. Prophecies that the prophets didn't even know were prophecies. He fulfills them. God's promises and blessings are all true in Jesus. He is defeating evil. He is making life for us by his death. Again, God is much, much bigger than having us be good-ish and making us feel good. He is so much bigger than that. His, purpose, his purposes extend to all creation. He's making everything new. That's the life that we get in Christ. And we settle for your sex takes me to paradise. Just a note here, the church for centuries has argued over how to interpret Jesus' words. This is my body and this is my blood. Can we just say that Jesus is here when we celebrate the meal? He is in us. He is in and around the elements. He is with us. He is making us new. The, the bread and the wine actually nourish us, body and soul. He is with us. He is in us. Let's not take the, the meal of Christ and the communion of God's people and turn it into a place of division. And again, we're unworthy guests anyway. He's the host. I'm not a theological master when it comes to this stuff. He is the theology itself. He is the word of God. So Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the son of man. He is the suffering servant. And Jesus is also the bridegroom. Jesus wraps up this meal in verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Again, that's the fourth cup. He's saying, I'm not going to drink the cup of completion and hope. I'm not going to drink it until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So in one sense, Jesus fulfills that and drinks that cup, the cup that the Father gives to him on the cross when he dies for us. In one sense, that's what happens. So the, the cup that he says, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours. He drinks that cup on the cross and then he cries out, it is finished. Now, Mark does not use the same language John uses. John uses that language, it is finished, and he drinks from the, the cup. Mark uses different language. And so I think Mark is actually telling us something different in addition to that idea that he drinks the cup on the cross. And it goes back to marriage. So we're coming back around to sex again. In first century marriage, you would get married when the groom would come over to the father of the bride's house and he would negotiate with the father of the bride for the marriage price and all of that. He would make sure that the bride really wanted to marry him and then they would sign the documents. And so they would sign the covenant and then they were married. So they were married at that point and then the groom goes away for like a year or a few years. Up to seven years, the groom went away and they were still married even though the bride lived with her father and the groom lived at his house. He went to prepare a place for her. If you remember that language from John 14. The groom goes off to prepare a place. During this time, they are married legally. In order to divorce, they would have to get a legal divorce. So this is the state that Joseph and Mary are in when the angel visits Mary and she gets pregnant, right? In order to, to get rid of her, Joseph would have to divorce her legally, quietly. 
And then, after the, everything was prepared, the groom would come back and get the bride. They would go back to his house, they would drink another cup of wine, and then they would consummate the marriage. So, you can see, I hope you're starting to see some of the images of connections to what we live in today. Right? Jesus, here in the meal, is signing the marriage certificate drinking that cup of wine, signing the marriage certificate, and then he goes away to prepare a place for us. And when he comes back, that's when we're going to celebrate the marriage feast, have that last cup of wine, completion, the cup of completion and hope, and hope will be fulfilled. And at that point, we consummate the marriage, consummate the kingdom of God. Theological language, that's what we say, the fully consummated kingdom of God. It's, we're in the not yet, but then... We will fully consummate the kingdom. We are already his bride, but we haven't fully consummated the marriage yet. But we will be perfected at the marriage feast in a new heavens and a new earth celebrated in a new Jerusalem. A few things to note. First, we've already talked about the fact that we are not a particularly faithful or beautiful bride, we are unworthy. Of, of Jesus choosing us. But the meal, this meal, makes us into that beautiful bride. His body and his blood nourish us and make us into something that we cannot be without him. We are not good enough on our own, but in the meal, he makes us new. From unworthy, unfaithful guests to beautiful, faithful brides. From betrayers and cowards and deniers to holy and faithful lovers of Jesus, from creatures who participate in destroying God's creation to rulers in his new creation. That's what Jesus does in us as we feed on him. Second, again, we're unworthy. We're all unworthy. But Jesus invites all of us. He is uniting us and sanctifying us in this meal. We are a united bride. There are no divisions between Jew and Greek and African-American and Syrian refugee and American, between slave and free and immigrant and CEO, between male and female, same-sex attracted and heterosexual, married and single, child, adult, urban, rural, rich and poor. Those are the world's divisions. Those are not divisions in the kingdom of God. Third, the church is already married to Jesus. That work is already done. We are waiting for the consummation. Revelation 19 to 22, I invite you to read that this week, points us to this final wedding feast where the perfect bride will be made ready. History ends, new creation begins, and we will all celebrate with Jesus. We will drink together that cup of hope and completion. We will be fully made new. I look forward to that day, celebrating that with you all. And again, sex... We will consummate our marriage to Christ in a fulfilled and fully consummated kingdom of God when he returns. The language in Revelation is there will be no temple because God will be so intimate to us that we won't need to go to a place to worship. We will just be with him. There will be no son because the father and the son will be the light by which we see. God is so intimate with us and with his creation fully consummated. We will experience intimacy with God and with ourselves and with one another in a new way, a, new th- a way that fulfills our deepest longings. Sex 
that spontaneous sex that our culture loves is a really poor imitation of good, faithful, married sex. And good, faithful, married sex is a really dim picture of the kind of intimacy that we will experience in the consummated kingdom of God. We will experience something wholly new and the kind of intimacy that we can't even picture or imagine for ourselves yet. Bad sex is supposed to picture good sex for us and really good, faithful, married sex is supposed to make us think, I really long for the kingdom of God. That will be when my deepest yearnings come true. Again, at that wedding feast, we will be totally and fully consummated with Christ, our bridegroom. So again, we are unworthy guests made into a beautiful bride together. We are celebrating Jesus' death on the cross that overcomes our sin in the wedding feast that will consummate our marriage to him in the future. So in conclusion, and again, this is the best conclusion we could have, I think, for this passage. We're going to eat the Lord's Supper together. As we've heard from the Lord today, this meal celebrates Jesus' death for us. It feeds and nourishes us on the life of the Son of Man who rules over the nations. It heals us as we participate in the gift that Jesus, our suffering servant, gives to us. And it unifies and sanctifies us as the one beautiful, holy, faithful bride of Christ. It allows us to participate in both his death on the cross and in the future wedding feast. It's a remembrance and a look forward to that future wedding feast that we will celebrate with our bridegroom, the Lamb. Let me pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to die for us. Jesus, thank you for coming to us as the Passover lamb, the son of man, the suffering servant and the bridegroom. We praise you and look forward to the great wedding feast that we will get to celebrate with you. Holy Spirit, continue your work in us. Nourish us by this meal that we take together and make us a beautiful and holy bride for our groom. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.